hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> December 16th, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am your co-host, Matthew Zachary, and I am a proud 17-year, soon-to-be 18-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm your co-host, Annie Goodman, journalist, young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. All right, it's not okay. That 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40 or over 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world. One chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show, the one and only Geraldine Lucas, American journalist, television producer, writer, fascinating individual. At the age of 29, in 1995, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, wrote a book, not just any book, the book, Why I Wore Lipstick to My Mastectomy. She's since become one of the most vocal advocates for the cause. Join us as we sit down with Geraldine for an exclusive 30-minute interview tonight. And uh, live here in the uh, Advocate Spotlight, author and e-patient Fard Johnmar. We're excited to have both Geraldine and Fard in the studio. And I am Maureen Sweet, Chief Everything Else Officer here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback, or just interact with me in general at any time with hashtag FC Radio. All right. That's our self-ingratiating applause. For all, of our, like for all of our on-site guests. Yes, yes, yes. Well, we have one. This is our penultimate. I'll use my SAT word for the evening. Yeah, good Penultimate job. show of season 13 of the Stupid Cancer Show. What does that word mean? It means next to last. Oh, okay. Yes. Hmm. What a mercurial cool. season. <laughs> <laughs> How obsequious of you to mention that. Exactly. I'm going to move on to the analogy portion. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Um, anyway. Hi, Annie. Hi, Matt. I'm glad to ba- have you back on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be back again. So I'd love to hear your update from last week because I understand you have yeah. a, in Yiddish we would say Tsuris. Yeah, I um, 
I was hustling. So tomorrow's a big day. I go to Sloan Kettering, and uh, hopefully they will have some answers as to what's going on. Um, I still don't know if I have metastatic breast cancer or ovarian cancer, so hopefully they'll have some sort of response. That'd well, be cool. I'd like a response because I have to update your bio. I know. <laughs> it's a little disingenuous. Yeah, I mean, come on. simply a I breast know. cancer survivor. Yeah. Little authenticity, please. I know, but I might still <laughs> just be a breast cancer survivor. We don't know yet. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so we'll find that out. And then I majorly hustled, and I got into MD Anderson, and I'm going on Wednesday morning, flying to Houston, spending a few days there, going. I saw your post. It was like waiting list was like six months, yeah, and you I got ca- in for a week. Yeah, I ca- so a couple on a of, favor. So a couple of things happened. So I called MD Anderson. Well, MD Anderson. First you know, of all, it got cold. Yes, I mean, that happened. Yes, that <laughs> happened, and then um, so I started the process to get in as a for a consultation, and uh, you fill this online form, and then they call you the next day, and they said, "Are you getting treatment here?" And I said, "No, I'm not relocating to Houston. I just need your tumor board to look at my case, and I need you guys." I explained everything that's going on, and um, I need to see this doctor. So I'll be there next week. So I was like, I'm coming. I'm, I'm available. I have nothing else to do. So, you know, just tell me when to show up. And they're like, okay, come in six months. I was like, uh, yeah, not going to work. So um, I told them. And then it was a back and forth. They're like, well, your your insurance probably isn't going to cover this. I said, well, don't worry about the insurance because, you know, just tell me how much it's going to cost. And if it's going to cost, you know, four or $5,000, I'll I'll pay for it and then deal with my insurance later. Whatever. They They gave me a really hard time. So I was like, whatever, I got people, so let me just, <laughs> I was like, you know, put my name in the system. I Do got, you know who I am? I know, I was like, I got people, I raise a lot of money for a lot of organizations, so I'll talk to you later. So then last week there was that big breast cancer conference in San Antonio. Right. And as I've mentioned before, I raised a lot of money for the Triple Negative Foundation, I'm very involved, and they had a bunch of representatives there, they have a patient advocate who helps a lot of people, and he's really tight with a breast oncologist at MD Anderson, chased him down. I don't know how exactly you found him, if he, like, saw him after a seminar and, like, ran and tackled him. But I know he was, like, because I got texted him, I emailed him, and I'm, I'm like, going to wait outside whatever room he's in. The bathroom. So, yeah, so I got, like, a phone call on Friday. I was, like, out to brunch with my friend because I was I'm on disability. But I was feeling well, so I went out to brunch with my friend. So I um, got the phone call, and they're, like, he'll see you next Thursday. And then I cried because I was so excited. And those are the things, it's like you would think that I want a trip to the Bahamas because I was so happy that I was going to be going to Houston and then um, started the process. And uh, so I'm going. My parents are meeting me there. It's like an insurance paperwork nightmare. And also the records and getting everything there in time is giving me a lot of agita. So hopefully everything comes together. They'll have, you know, the tumor board meets on Thursday morning. I'm going to see them Thursday at some point. And then we'll see what they say. But it feels pretty good to know that in the course of one week, after this nightmare started six weeks ago, I will be at the number one, number two cancer centers in the country, have their opinions, hear what they have to say, see what treatment they recommend, clinical trial, whatever it is they think that I can do so that this will not happen again. I'd like to not have – I don't know what organs I have left to give to the (laughs) doctor, so – um, I'd like a break from surgery too. So well, you do have two, um, two uh, kidneys, right? I do have yeah. two kidneys. Okay. <laughs> and I also, you know, what else I have? And I should have told them to take it out. Uh, I have an appendix. Yeah. 
And, and a gallbladder. You, you know. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, so much Let's go through the list. Too, okay? I know. But those are, those are more like, you know, gallbladder is more like an old Jew thing that, like, every, my mom had her gallbladder removed, and I think my dad did, too. So maybe genetically that day will come as well. Right. But, um, you know, God willing, I am a senior citizen one day. So, um, we've done. We've had conversations about how many body parts do you not need. What's that surgery called? Like the gut, the, the where they take half your organs out? Organotomy? No, it's it's the one Steve Jobs <laughs> had. I just I, mean my liver. It's where they it's basically like I was debulked. Ha- like it, well, I had to debulk because I had a hysterectomy, but it's like more than debulk, and they take like half of your insides out. But um. Who yeah. needs insides? Insides are overrated. I know. Yeah. What's like an eating what's disorder. On the outside? <laughs> I know. I know. It's like taking a couple of ribs. So, yeah, so we'll see what they say and hopefully i get some answers because the uncertainty of not knowing what type of cancer I have had, whatever, is very frustrating. But also, more importantly, I need to be treated properly. So that is my, you know, as a young adult, we all deal with the uncertainty and uh, hearing from a doctor. We've never seen this before. So um, hopefully I'll get some answers and get treated and start chemo and start getting wiggy with it again. And uh, who needs hair anyway, right? Overrated. Totally. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And then hopefully, you know, we'll see how it goes. Hopefully I'll come in next Monday. Are you flying solo to Houston? I am flying by myself, but I'm going to totally, like, ask my doctor for a note. So I can get expedited through security. Nice. Because I also can't really carry heavy stuff. But I have a feeling that like rush hour at JFK, like I have an 8 a.m. flight at Kennedy on Wednesday. They're going to like look, because I look healthy. So people are probably going to give me the major stink eyes. I get like rolled around Kennedy Airport passing by security in a wheelchair. But I don't care. You just right. have to like fake a limp or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, I forgot who I was talking to, but I was like, you want to see my scars? So I'll just like lift up my shirt and be like, "Would you like to? See, would you like to check it out?" So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah, me and my parents in Houston, and um, I don't know. I don't know what there is to do. It's fun in Houston, but so I'll we're gonna mi- we're gonna miss you next week then. Well, let's see how it goes. Okay. Physically, let me see what kind of <laughs> mental space I'm in next exactly. Monday. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Yeah, on the show next I would week. love to chat with her. Yeah. So. You know, I'll uh, I'm gonna do my best to make you it. You can't week. leave me alone. I know, I know. I'm gonna do my best to make it. Let me just. Jaron uh, uh, will come back and co-interview with me. True, but yeah, as long <laughs> as I'm not as long as I'm not in a mental hospital or having a nervous breakdown, then I'll be here. Good, fantastic. Well, let's get to our uh, let's get the show on eight eleven here on the Stupid Cancer Show. My first guest live in studio. We love live in studio. Far John Morris, the founder and president of Inspectos a digital health consultancy in his quest to help the health industry understand how digital technology have influenced consumer belief systems. He launched DigiHealth Pulse, a research initiative on how e-patients perceive health technology issues. His new book, which I read and it's amazing, called E-Patients 2015, 15 Surprising Trends in Changing Healthcare, explores how health technology is shaping the public perception of care. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Far John Mark. Great to be here, sir. Welcome. Hello. You're looking mighty fine. Thank you. You are as well. We oh. haven't seen each other since the birth of your two children. Yes, that was. Uh, oh wow. Yes, the, yeah. He, the, like the, the day the day I met you yep. was the day Kenny met my my parents. 
Yep. When the kids were born. Yep. Yeah, long time ago. A famous well, day. A famous in the annals of history. Yes. Wow. What were you doing back then? And why why did I meet you? I was doing the same thing pretty much <laughs> I'm doing now, except that uh, I, I didn't have a book, but uh, you know, uh, it was through Jane Sarenson Khan. That's right. Yeah. Jane At Healthy Thinker, Khan. right? Yep. She has yep. a new DIY health yep. portal. It's doing amazingly well. Yeah. I think it's up to 250,000 uh, folks That's who are incredible. involved in the community. I think it's only been out uh, for two days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah. She's fantastic. So, uh, you know, Jane and I are still connected. And, yep. Uh, she likes every post of my kids on Facebook. Yep. So, And I love her post as well. Yeah. She's very yeah. smart. Very smart. So what got you into this line? You go to school and say, I'm going to write books on e-patients 10 years ago when there were no e-patients. I never imagined in, in, uh, that I'd ever be in this position, you know, uh, in terms of uh, writing a book. But I've been, you know, I mean, you, we've known each other since, what, like 50 Internet years? You yeah. Know, you know, it's got to be a long time. And, uh, you know, I've really been focused on uh, helping people really understand the connection between human beings, actual human beings, and technology, and how, they, uh, how they're influenced. And so uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Rohit Bhargava, who's my co-author on the book, um, you know, we've known each other uh, for a long time as well, and we've been talking about trying to put together a uh, kind of a roadmap around what's to come as it relates to kind of digitally influenced uh, healthcare, and one of the things that we noticed immediately, uh, you know, we've been working on the book for about a year or so, is that there's so many buzzwords being thrown around. You know, e-patients, digital health, mobile health, and you know, one of the things that's absolutely missing is the people aspect of this. You know, and that's really what we're trying to bring forward uh, with e-patient 2015 is looking at these these not just technology but also where people live, the food they eat, right? Uh, as it relates to you know the future of healthcare in this country beyond. And I know that economics is a big deal right now, um, and it always is. And Anna, you were talking about that earlier, and and that that can't be denied. But we also want to focus on um, other aspects of healthcare that are uh, you know very much more in the day to day. So I have my endorsement, which I pulled up because I want to read it because I really believe in this, and I'll, I'll talk about my perspective in a second. But uh, and, and this is just me talking like Matt. Anyone that knows me knows this is clearly a Matt quote. But the uh, the clairvoyance ideated by the authors is not only spot on; it is a welcome and disruptive shift from the current aseptic and vacuous thinking that has withheld true innovation and progress in the digital health sector. For your mind to obviate barriers to success, and read this book. Thank you for that. And you were one of the first people to not only read the book, but also, you know, give us that fantastic endorsement. I just want to say thank you for that. So my, my perspective, I'll, I'll just start the, the dialogue then. Um, having been on the, sort of the fringe of this digital health startup movement and the way the, just people first paying attention to the fact that people like us actually pay attention to healthcare in the health 2.0, which cropped up in like after the web 2.0 in no, 2006, 7, 8. I was on the Google Health Advisory Council back then, and w with like I felt like the dumbest guy in the room, like just genius leaders in that room discussing this. And I think it was ahead of its time, but it needed to happen when it did. But my my perspective as a cancer patient or survivor, I guess we're all patients, um, and a patient advocate and a nonprofit guy have given me a really weird perspective on the the evolution of this. And we had. Um, uh, who was here? Steve Crane and Unity Stokes were here about startup health, and I, I actually paid a, a trip to Blueprint Health just to see what they're up to. I, I'm really torn on 
these really well-intentioned, intelligent people taking all this angel investment money and seemingly wasting it. And and they're all good ideas. But the challenge I've seen, and this is where I want I want to hear from you, there's a very spirited dialogue with, with uh, the two of those guys on the show two weeks ago. Nobody's really actually talking to the nonprofit sector. They're talking to patients, but they're not talking to patient advocacy organizations. And I, I see that as the major downfall as to why there really are no adopted, like mass appeal adopted products on the market. There are little things here and there, ZocDoc and whatnot, and you know, and um, We Go Health and what Jane's doing. But in terms of what is the role of the patient advocate, not just the the e patient itself. So you you've done a good job of redefining that. But when you talk to anyone in that sector, they oh Dave DeBrunkart, e patient Dave, he, he's version one of the e patient. He's done an amazing job and he's an amazingly compelling person. And and now that we're looking at big data and high tech, like he wants his data. Here's the nine terabyte hard drive for your data. Good luck with that. You know. So what do you do? I'd love your thoughts on this. Is such an exciting and and partially you know. A, a, Full of despair, kind of conversation. Yeah, well, you know, um, you know, and you actually, it's funny that you had Unity and Steve on the show because you know we go back as well. You know, I think what it comes down to in terms of why the nonprofit organizations, and also frankly the doctors, you know, also are missing ingredient as it relates to this, um, have been missing is because the folks who are in the technology arena cherish their role as outsiders. You know, a lot of them don't know health have never been patients, you know, have a very engineering-related um, focus on, on these things. And so I think that that, you know, they're forging ahead, pushing ahead with their solutions, and they're heavily focused on bringing these things to market. The second thing as it relates to expanding the definition of e-patient, and it actually gets down to something I was talking with Annie earlier about in terms of what it means to be an e-patient, Right. Um, you, you know, we were talking about the fact that traditionally e-patients have been viewed as people who are engaged, equipped, empowered, active, pushing for their data, this, that, and the other. That is certainly important. But what it also means to be an e-patient is to have uh, technology act on you in ways that you, don't, you aren't necessarily aware of. And I think one of the reasons that the uh, not-for-profit uh, groups and, and uh, doctors and even patients are less involved in this is because they, th- there's this perception that technology and data and analytics and predictive analytics, et cetera, have more power to act on people on an individual level than people do. Um, and so because there's a, there's a belief in the power of data, which I think is, is absolutely well-founded, but sometimes misplaced, um, in terms of developing the solutions, which is why a lot of players such as yourself, are not involved in this conversation because it's really at the level of the aggregate and they have the abstract. So I think that's, that's the, you know, I, you know, I personally like to look at the psychological and cultural and social underpinnings of some of this stuff, and that's really where some of that stuff is coming from. So do you sense that in, in terms of, you know, in terms of your conversations? I, I do, and, you know, it really comes down to the fact that the nonprofits, they'll bring the crowd they bring the reputation they are the brand and what's in it for us to tell someone about health tap yeah really what's in it for us yeah you know one might argue that uh, ron would tell me you know ron gutman the founder of health tap would, yeah. would tell me well your patients would love this platform it's great for them they're like yeah but you know pay me to tell them because we're yeah. a charity yeah and i think there in lies 
the 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 rub or the barrier to partnership because yeah. they're living on angel money. Yeah. You know, their their investors are looking at every dollar they spend. Why yeah. would they even bother yeah. quantifying value to give money to a charity? Yeah. So anyway, and they had a quick question. Well, you know, just just to follow okay. up on that yeah. as well, one of the things that you're going to see start to change, though, is the fact that you know certainly Steve and Unity represent one aspect of this space. But there are traditional players, such as you know, managed care, such as uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundations of the world, right. and those folks who are building out incubators, accelerators, building partnerships, et cetera. And those folks understand more the value of you know, organizations like Stupid Cancer, et cetera. And I think that you might begin to see more openness as those tr- more traditional players start to come into the fore. And one of the things we discussed earlier was about how you want to you know, lobby doctors and physicians, oncologists, whoever, to get this information to the patients. And I know that my doctor and a lot of other oncologists and whatever, you know, illness or disease you're suffering from, they don't want you to go on the Internet. And my doctor, like I got an email from a doctor in all capital letters that was get off the Internet in all capital letters, worst thing you can do, watch movies. And they didn't want me to do research. But because I'm so plugged in and just even plugged in, you know, in general in life. Like I love using Twitter and Facebook and whatever to gather information, you know, working in news, like it's just your instinct to want information. And, you know, they didn't want me to do all this research. And one my my breast oncologist it's kinda of weird, I have five oncologists now, but my, my main breast oncologist said, I know you're a journalist, but stop doing research. But to me that's also frustrating because I wanna know what's going on but then some doctors find that counterproductive because they see each individual person as a, you know, cancer is a very individualized disease. They don't like you to compare notes to other people. So what are you? What would you tell the doctor who, you know, a lot of doctors like mine feel the same way, don't be Dr. Google. How do you pitch this to those doctors? Well, you know, there there is a um, there's a trend in the book that we call care, uh, care hacking. And essentially what that is, and in fact, in the book, we talk about this, about the fact that traditionally the Internet has been viewed as an information source, right? All of the words that you used were, I need to go get information, I need to do research, I need to find what I'm looking for, I need to find information that's going to help me. The thing that has been underrepresented about the Internet is the social aspect, the emotional aspect. So in you going to the web to get information, I think, you know, and I don't want to psychoanalyze you because I don't know you, but... Oh, go ahead. You know, I, it's okay. <laughs> I think you were looking for... I'll lay on the couch know, if you want me to contr- oh, be feel better. There's a yeah. couch right here. <laughs> um, you were looking for control, right, a sense of, of, of control. I, I need to know what's going on with my body. But secondly, there's this whole issue of emotional support, right? You know, we, we live in a connected society, but we're all very alone. You know, we sit in front of our computers. We, you know, we have these virtual connections. And, and one of the things that uh, I think doctors and other healthcare providers need to understand is that it's not just about information, it's about emotional support. Absolutely. And the doctor is not there to give emotional support. They're there to give information. To well, that's another debate, though, not to interrupt. Yeah. We've had this sure. conversation numerous times on the show. Yeah. And, and I'm of the ilk that my doctor does not need to be a therapist. I yeah. could care less if he cares about me. I want him to know the best medicine. Yeah to cure me, and I'll deal with the nurse and the social worker. Yeah. There are arguments on, on other sides about it would be really nice if the doctor had a predisposed personality for humanitarianism. Well, yeah, and what's funny as you say about the support, Yeah, 
um, my doctor's instinct is go see a psychiatrist. Yeah. But yeah. that only that can only take you so far because you know you'll go for your half hour hour session, and you know get it all out and you'll feel better and they'll give you they'll help teach you ways to cope with your feelings yeah. and what you're going through. Yeah. But they don't know what you're going through because yeah. unless they you know had the same thing you had or. You know, a lot of not every therapist or psychologist or whatever has had cancer or Mm -hmm. diabetes or MS or whatever disease it is. They can't they can only do so much. Mm -hmm. So I know that when I've met tons of people and this is something that stupid cancer does is connecting people so that you don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. And I hope that doctors will listen to you guys Mm -hmm. to not to. It's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. They need to. People need to be talked, you know, talked to about how to filter out the noise, mm-hmm. but also to use it to their advantage because you can make connections. You can make your best friend. You can, you know, find someone you could text in the middle of the night, like I can't sleep and yep. I don't feel good, or you know, I just wanted. To, can you chat? Or you know, I'm sad, or you know, something good happened tonight. I wish that doctors would promote that a little bit more and not be so afraid of it. Yeah. It's not always a bad thing. Yep. And, um, you know, one of the other things we spoke about before the show was, you know, kind of in addition to the book being a roadmap, we also want to provide language for people because language is very important, you know. So you're not going to Dr. Google, right? You're getting virtual counseling, you know. Yeah, I do a little uh, bit of both. Yeah, but yeah. Well, you know, in addition to that, right? And so I think, you know, for people who are very against people going online and using the web and these social social aspects, back to your point, Matthew, in terms of whether a doctor should be a psychiatrist or should just be focused on your care, you know, I can't answer that, you know? I mean, sometimes you do want that support, but the mo- the biggest thing, when I'm looking at a doctor and I've had difficult times with a doctor, you know, I'm not looking for that emotional support. I just want to know what's going on and what are the options. And at that time, the doctor is an information source for me. But are we and, talking and, about yeah. PCP or are we talking about just any, your yeah. oncologist? Any doctor. Well, yeah. any doctor, you know. Because I mean, his applies to other things be- yeah, beyond just cancer. People. Yeah. Right. So, you know, but that, but if people remember the social aspect of, of these technologies uh, in addition to the information aspect, I think that they'll be much more willing to accept you doing things, you know, because you, you're smart enough to filter this stuff. Yeah. You know. I mean, you get a little, a lot of riffraff, like, giving their random opinions about whatever is going on or, you know, bullies. Yeah. I mean, that's like, but you have to be willing to take the good with the bad. Yeah. Right, so in our remaining five minutes, let's talk about these 15 surprising trends. What, what are the top trends that people can take away from this book? I want to I want to talk about the top trends from a patient perspective because you know that that's what you guys are focused on. One of them is this whole idea of care hacking, which is basically people saying that the web is beneficial. There's still an argument about that. The second is virtual counseling, like we've been talking about. Um, another trend that we want to focus on actually uh, is less related to technology. Uh, there's one called augmented nutrition, which is all about using technology to to really understand what goes into your body. And the other thing uh, that we were somewhat surprised that is coming to the fore so quickly since we're talking about 2015 is something called healthy real estate. And that's actually, you know, when people move, not just thinking about schools, not just thinking about crime, but thinking about health facilities, mm-hmm. the places that you can actually go walk, you know. Uh, and that is absolutely vital uh, with regard to some things that the federal government's been doing around or really don't promoting move to health and well-being. What's that? <laughs> don't, or don't move, move to Chernobyl. To Chernobyl. Yeah. Right. So, you know, healthy real estate, care hacking, virtual counseling, <laughs> and, um, 
and uh, healthy real estate are four trends that uh, I think uh, you know are. I think all the trends are important, but those are four that I think relate to health and well-being, social aspects of health, uh, which would be vitally important. I think to your listeners. Right, and the healthy real estate. I like that idea. We should do a whole of the show about that mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. But that ties into a lot of our environmental activism that we do. We work with other nonprofits on this, where you know, like Long Island, for example, has the highest incidence of breast cancer in the country per capita. It has the most breast cancer charities in the country per capita, and it was built on agri- chemical agribusiness when um, Robert Moses built Levittown. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pl- my hometown you're talking about. Here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, not Levittown. Long this Island. is also a question my family asked when I was diagnosed, and I have my own theories, but go on. No, but like the whole point is like you, you really want to have an environmental sort of a t- t- uh, topographical understanding of what existed in that town, was there a brain cancer cell six years ago? Did Aaron Brockovich make a visit recently? Mm-hmm. You really want to, you know, that's something that not just about the schools. Mm-hmm. It, you're absolutely right. I love it. The uh, what do you call it? Again? Re- healthy, healthy real estate. Healthy right. real estate. And the other one is about, um, you know, the food that goes into our bodies. You know, um, it called aug- augmented nutrition. And in the book, we talk a lot about the rise of the food movement. Um, in terms of you know making sure the food that we eat is not toxic, right? You know. Um, which has, you know, implications for cancer as well. Yep. Um, and so people are using these technologies to gain more control about the food that they eat that actually goes into their body. So um, so that's why I highlight those four, you know, because I think um, social, the food you eat and where you live, you know, th- those are three things that really hit home. All right. So last question. Are you optimistic? We are realistically optimistic. Um, we are optimistic that the future of health care is bright. But we're realistic that we have a long way to go, and there are a lot of issues that we need to address uh, as it relates to how technologies are being used today. And also from a, from a consumer or a patient perspective, there's a lot of things that we need to be aware of, especially as it relates to how our data is used, you know, that is collected by these various technologies to make sure that we're comfortable with that. So optimistically realistic. Love it. All right, we've been speaking with Far John Marr, founder and president of Inspectos. He is the author of a new book, ePatient. 2015, 15 Surprising Trends, Changing Healthcare, available now at www.epatient2015.com. There you go. Far John Marr, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Kenny, let's get to the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out, Matt. We have events coming up in San Diego. We have Cancer Palooza in Marina del Rey happening on December 20th. Friday night It's going to be a big party. Uh, I heard there's an ugly sweater contest. Oh There's boy! It's going to be uh, Mara and the big rock stars performing live. Nice. Uh, as well as alcohol, I'm sure, and good times and dancing. Uh, and finally, uh, in January, we have our first meetup of 2014 in Northbrook, Illinois. Very nice. All right, Vegas time. Registration for the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is open for business. Come out to the largest young adult cancer conference in the world and join 500 of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, caregivers, activists, and advocates for an epic three-and-a-half-day event that will change your life forever. Visit omg2014.org to learn more, and don't forget about the OMG Players Club, which is your path to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for Stupid Cancer. 
it's going to be my fifth OMG. So yeah. That means that my life has been changed five times. Yes. Or will be five times. All right, anyway. It's time to stock up on Stupid Cancer holiday gear because you know who's going to Stupid Cancer hoodie? Everyone. Surf on over to stupidcancerstore.org for 30% off until the day after Christmas on everything. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And you're listening to the Stupid Cancer Show in its all-new HD format. We know you can't listen to each show live, so be sure to subscribe for free anytime on iHeartRadio Talk, Apple iTunes Podcast, or right here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Visit stupidcancershow.org anytime to get connected, and thanks for listening. And And that that is your Stupid Cancer Cancer News. She's getting (laughs) rickrolled. She's getting rickrolled. Gerilyn Lucas, I got a long bio, I'll just make this up. Gerilyn Lucas was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1995 at 27 years old, working at 2020. When she had discovered a lump in her breast diagnosed, she wrote an epic book, which has defined the young adult cancer movement. Epic. Called Why I Wore Lipstick to My Mastectomy, which talked about her experience and discussed her attitude about overcoming the challenges of breast cancer. The book was made into an Emmy-nominated movie on Lifetime, <laughs> starring a hot blonde, <laughs> she likes to joke. <laughs> the theme song, I Am Not My Hair, for the movie, was written by Pink and uh, India Ari. Uh, she's become an activist, informing women about breast cancer, early detection, and she recently created a webby on her YouTube video, which I watched and love. We'll talk about that. To inform women about early detection, please welcome the one and only Geraldine Lucas. That bio had a lot of Rick Ashley in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> welcome. We don't Rick roll many people anymore, but you get that honor. Yeah. That chat before me was just fascinating. I first of all, I was googling while you were speaking. I never heard the term e-patient. Is that unbelievable? I'm I feel so out of it. I feel so much smarter. It's a whole other side right of now. healthcare that like half the people in Fard, would you say more than half the people don't even know that this exists, right? Yeah, he's nodding his head. But this is I mean, this is fascinating. I need to know about it. So I'm buying your book. And I wrote down e-patient. Wait, where's my cashier sound? (laughs) 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 But, oh my gosh, it's incredible, this community you've created, because we need to know. This is need to know. Yeah, and again, I go back to the fact that I've I've been privy to this this e-patient revolution since it started in 2006, 2007, when really no one had any idea what it was or what it meant. And it's fostered a really impressive cottage industry, but it really hasn't yielded any significant traction yet for actual patients, and it, it, it's exciting to see what role. I keep bringing back the nonprofits are not part of this conversation, but they are, and they are now because we're in the ring. But they will be in greater force as um, they talked about the e-patient 2.0, which is exactly where your book is springboarding patients to get more involved in the nonprofits who are partnering with this digital health technology. It's it's incredible. I have to say, I was an internet junkie and this was 18 years ago before the internet was really Wait, let me cue up my now. AOL dial-up sound. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I found such amazing information. First of all, I found this guy. I okay, I had this genetic test to see if I had the BRCA gene, which I didn't. Of course, I had a mutant mutation, which was P1238L. So I just took P1238L and I put it in Google or whatever, and I found this guy in Canada, the only guy who had published on P1238L. 
I sent him an email. He wrote me back immediately. And he said, in my observation, P1238L is not a deleterious, S-A-T word, yes. harmful mm-hmm. mutation. So I brought it into my oncologist, and I showed her the email, and she said, how did you email with this guy? I mean, he was on the front page of you know, science and the Lancet. I said, I don't know. I just sent him an email. So um, it was really helpful. I found a lot of early fertility studies that were published. I mean, no one was talking about fertility back then. No, they weren't. After cancer. Well, you and I were diagnosed in the mid-90s. We went through a very similar experience. We were five years apart, but still, same experience. Were you before Lance, before... I mean, I was before... I was before Lance. So was yeah. I. I mean, and that's a real line in the sand, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Because whatever Lance has done, I mean, he really did revolutionize talking about cancer, uh, especially for younger people. Right. And all these celebrities that have, you know, really come out. I mean, this yeah. is this is a dark ages. 18 years ago, I thought I was going to get fired for telling my bosses. And my brother said, no, legally you're protected. It was crazy. Yeah. Sorry. So what possessed you to, how did you find the lump? Like, how did this, talk yeah. us through your life at 2020. Just sure. Sex in the City was popular and, you know. It was, <laughs> About everyone, to be. Yeah. 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 I was in middle school. Yeah, Kenny was nine years old. I was a fetus. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Yeah. I wasn't actually kidding. kidding. Yeah. Not that bad. Okay, I was just about to say, I feel so old, and that's the best thing a cancer patient can yeah, say. Like, get, yep. I feel so old. Love that. Yeah. Um, so I was at 2020. I was just out of Columbia Journalism School. I was an intern, and I got hired. And the reason I was even doing breast exam, I did not have a family history then, a known family history. And I always give a speech now about family history, and I say when someone in the family is diagnosed, everyone go on high alert. It's not just retrospective, it's also prospective. Um, So I didn't have a family history. I didn't even know that breast cancer could happen if, you were under 40, and right. I thought your mom had to have it. And I, I, it was just I had, I had so much misinformation. So what happened is when I was dating my husband, he was a resident on the breast service. That's not how we met. That sounds juicy. But he was <laughs> second date. He told me That's about every Jewish girl's date. dream. I know. Yeah. Right? <laughs> he told me he did a mastectomy on a patient. Then he told me that this woman had been misdiagnosed and she was only 28, and she had been turned away by three different doctors. And can you believe I was diagnosed at 28? I mean, so he really saved my life. He would come home, and he'd say, someone you know, someone you love is going to have this. It's one in 11 women. Now it's one in eight. So he used to make me say all my friends and relatives, and we never thought that person was going to be me. And so I just started doing breast exams because he kind of made me really nervous because he talked about this all the time. And when I found a lump, of course, he said, you're a hypochondriac. (laughs) And he didn't think it was going to be anything. And, I mean, thankfully, there's a lot more awareness about young women getting breast cancer now. But at the time, it was like everyone treated me like this is ridiculous. It's going to be nothing. I mean, they used to send women home. Let's wait and watch six months. Right. You know. Period, whatever, hormonal. Yeah. So thankfully I was taken seriously by this breast surgeon and it was it was stunning. I mean it was so it was so shocking. And I was scared to tell my work 
And the first person I told was my boss, and she was perfect, and she was scary, and I used to, like, rehearse before I got on the phone with her. And she stunned me and said, I had breast cancer when I was a young woman, and I'm going to take care of telling the staff, and you're going to be okay. So I actually named my daughter after her. Awesome. Wow. Yeah, so... She had it. She told stories about sitting on the floor at Sloan Kettering, like when they didn't, when it was like just being built, kind of, you mm-hmm. know, just right. the real dark ages there. But um, sorry, so you you've been in journalism. This is like yeah. your, your your life. You understand yeah. the art of communication. What possessed you to talk to my husband about that? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> where where along this immediacy did you say I'm writing a book? It's a really good question. I it wasn't my first thought at all. Because it wasn't very popular back then to write books about your cancer story. Everything no. was like chicken soup for the soul. Yeah. Actually, you know, when I first met with publishers and an agent, everybody said, you know, that's a category book and books about breast cancer won't sell. No one will buy a book about breast cancer. Right. It's so depressing. It's so, you know, and the reason I really was inspired to write my book is I was so sick of all the maudlin, depressed. I mean, there was this picture of cancer that was being thrown at me where, you know, I went to support groups and everyone looked like my grandmother. And they were really nice, but they weren't my age. And the doctors didn't know how to talk to me. I mean, when I would ask them about having a baby, they would just kind of look at me like, don't you get it? You have cancer, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. So I just felt like I wanted to, and every time, and no offense to journalists, anyone would try to write about my story, I always thought they got it kind of wrong. Did they call you like a victim in every piece? Yeah, there was a lot of that, and it was just a lot of this, like, you know, really sad music, and so I just decided I I wanted to tell my story in the way that it felt authentic to me, which Mm -hmm. was starting in a strip bar where I'm deciding whether I can have a mastectomy, you know, and kind of bringing some of the crazy. It was also very strange. We got a lot of calls when the review copies went out that people didn't know what to make of it. The same with the movie, because at that point there wasn't a lot of humor around cancer. Right. So people thought it was very taboo. Everything was terms of endearment. Yeah. People really thought it was taboo, and they didn't know if it was okay to laugh. They didn't know the tone, like, what is this? Am I supposed to laugh? I thought I'm supposed to cry. Uh, can I laugh? Can I cry? And I just, I wanted to take my story back. I really did. And I most importantly wanted to be there. I started getting so many calls from young women, mm-hmm. and I'd meet them in bathrooms and show them what my reconstruction looked like. And I realized, wow, I could be there for people and this is the book I wanted to read right. when I was diagnosed. This is what I wanted. You really wrote someone. it for you. Yeah. I I mean, that sounds really narcissistic <laughs> and selfish, but I, I wrote, this is the book I wanted to read. This is the book I wanted a young woman who was diagnosed to pick up because I wanted her to know she was going to be okay. And even if she wasn't going to be okay, she was going to be okay. Right. Does that make sense? It does. And your book did that because when I was diagnosed, I was introduced to you via email to some people we know in the business. And um, I knew about your book, I don't know, a month after I was diagnosed. Oh, thank you. Even, and I remember uh, 
a mutual friend we had um, messaged me and told me, like, the color of lip gloss she wore to her mastectomy. It was something MAC. My brain isn't operating very well tonight, so I can't remember the name of it. But um, it was a very sweet story, and um, I'm glad I get to finally sit next to you and meet you. I am honored. And when you were telling that story, I have to say I got so emotional about getting that appointment at MD Anderson. Yeah. Because it's like when you're a cancer patient, you know, going through these things, it's like you know, certain people want to be the first to get the iPhone 5 or this or that. But when you score the appointment with the right doctor, mm-hmm. it means more to you than any pair of shoes and, and like any getting any job. Like yeah. you can't explain. And and that just was so fresh to me when you talked about it. And it was like it was yesterday. Like I actually. It practically was. It was like four days ago. Oh Not even. Yeah. It was this Friday. I just, I'm yeah. so happy for you. And I really Thank you. admire your determination. And I remember that introduction. And, you know, the solidarity of, you know, when you're being wheeled into that OR and you know something's going to be taken away and you just, there's there's nothing there you can hold on to. This whole idea of, I couldn't believe when women started wearing lipstick in solidarity, like it was a a kind of a vote of hope or just community connection. So then I started getting really funny letters of women who wore stripper tassels, who wore (laughs) tiaras when they were bald. My favorite letter was this woman who wore underwear, red underwear, and she refused to take off her underwear. You know how they Mm -hmm. make you take off your underwear during your surgery? And I, it was the most hilarious letter and how she won and what that meant to her. But I think, you know, you were we were talking before the show about the relevancy of your book because it was written 18 years ago or 17 years mm-hmm. ago. And, and I, I would argue the opposite. I would say it's, it's, it's as relevant because it not just speaks the, the same kind of tone relevant to Annie, you know, mm-hmm. like two years ago. And even, even so, you think things have changed? They really haven't. Mm. I was... You know, I was 30. I had a lump. I had no family history. I just know, like, I'm lucky that I went to a gynecologist who took it seriously Mm. because I still meet people who don't take it seriously. And, you know, people here who they said their doctors didn't take it seriously and then they're diagnosed at a much later state. And whether, you know, it could have just been they need a lumpectomy or now they need a mastectomy. I didn't know that young women, I didn't even think it was possible that a 3 year could get breast implants. I was like, why are you sending me for, I just remember, I was like, why are you sending me for a mammogram and an ultrasound? I was like, just drain this cyst and get it over with. Because it's still, as much as, you know, you think a lot's changed in 18 years, it's minimal. Well, we'll put it in perspective. When I launched this organization officially in January of 07, three weeks later, the New York Times did a story. I don't know how that happened. It just did. But this was like 2007 was the year the New York Times had like online journalism and embedded hyperlinks in their articles. So a really big deal for them. And we were one of the first big stories in their health section online. But one of the first comments on that, uh, that post was, I didn't know someone in their 20s could get cancer. Wow. And this was 11 years or 12 wow. years even after that fact. So everything really kind of started, at least in my mind, when Kenny joined Stupid Cancer. Like 2010 was a seminal year for the young adult cancer movement. Not just not just putting us right. in that category, but so much has happened in just three short right. years, clinically, public awareness, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And 
I, I look back at your book as like a, a historical document oh. in that sense where it has as much meaning today, but it sets the stage oh. for everything that's like the ripple effect of your book is still today. Mm-hmm. And and you thank should own you. that, and that's really yeah, important. Yeah, it definitely still applies. We have emens now to help us <laughs> so that yeah. we feel a little bit better. But it's really still the same wow. drugs, right? I'm that's sure you remarkable. had. I'm sure you had adriamycin. Everyone who has breast cancer or breast your lymph nodes, unless you have a heart condition, you're going to get adriamycin. It's still, you know, breast cancer. Everyone, because pink is everywhere, and because everybody talks about it, and because it is the one in a statistic, everyone thinks that it's so much better now. It's not. Yeah. It's it's, it's like stati- it's got, you know, as much money as poured into it, it's not any better. I mean, even look at me, like a year after I finished a ton of treatment, I now have cancer again and they thought that I'd be fine and move on with my life and I thought that the same I thought the same thing too and they they don't know and it's amazing to me that it is this way. So don't sell yourself short. You can still sell oh, plenty of books. Thank you. Well, I just want to say that you are my hero because I'm sorry you have to go through this again. And um, I just, I always say what if and seeing you here in your lipstick mm-hmm. and fighting to get that appointment and just, it's remarkable and being on the air and helping other people. But I also I think mean, it's generational too. You were very disruptive by choosing to write a humorous book with a slant that sort of derailed the public perception of, of mm-hmm. literature and cancer. You know, and today, you know, and, and that irreverence kind of gave birth to groups like, you know, Planet Cancer or the Colon Club and some of these irreverent <laughs> groups. Is there, is, is I there, heard about a group, The Breast Is Yet To Come. Ah, very or nice. The Young and the Breastless. Have you heard of that? Oh, no, that's, that's actually pretty fun. It's very yeah. clever. But see, that's generational. Like, we came yeah. up with that stuff. And I remember yeah. finding out, finding your book on Planet Cancer when really? I first discovered it, wow. seven years after I was diagnosed. And yeah. then I ran into you personally in that Boston event when your books didn't show yes. up. She <laughs> 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 had a book signing and her books didn't show up. That is so, you know what, I still remember what I talked about. And thank you guys for the compliments. You know, I still can't believe that even one person read my book aside from my mother. So <laughs> it's very um, kind of bizarre. But um, I just, I want to say that Stupid Cancer is, so important. I wish that you were around when I was diagnosed, but I'm so happy that I know you now. And I'm so happy you're here for my daughter and son's future. And I think, you know, my dad said something very strange to me when I was diagnosed. I mean, my mom didn't have it. You know, he said, when we were younger, no one our age, no one young got cancer. Right. He said cancer was an older person's disease. We did not know one young person. And he said, now... Look at, uh, you know, it's, so I think that it's so incredible. Well, part of that is like, I didn't notice Subarus on the highway till I owned one. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we kind of live and breathe in the club now. Yeah. So uh, it, it, the numbers have been steadily increasing. It's not right. like, you know, in, in the older populations, they talk about more people are getting diagnosed each year, but that's because of early detection methods. Interesting. There are no early detection methods with, with young adults. So the number is right. authentic. More people are actually getting diagnosed each year with cancer. Why? So that's the the truth. I want to jump ahead, though, because there's so much more life after the book, and you've done so many incredible things leveraging the story, and that you're still here, of course. So why don't you talk about, uh, you know, I I just love when you tell the story about uh, casting the movie of your book. 
I mean, whoever would have thought, you know, all I wanted to do was live, and then I get to be played by a tall blonde with fantastic <laughs> legs, Sarah Chalk. I mean, how weird is that? You know, that was like crazy, right? How weird is that? I was on yeah. set, and there's my tall blonde. It's like Ryan Gosling playing me in a movie. <laughs> I, th- I could see that. Yeah. I could see that. So can Maureen. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I think that the other thing I wanted to say about why I wrote the book is I wanted young girls to read the book and say, this is a what-if story. Like, don't be scared. Right. You know what I mean? Like, do a breast exam and don't be scared. And I've heard from so many young girls who read the book. Um, I did a partnership with a sorority and they did uh, philanthropy with breast cancer, the Zeta Tau Alpha sorority. And every single October, they're on college campuses handing out pink ribbons. And they're, it's just fantastic because I do feel like the earlier the awareness starts, the the kind of, I don't know. Better more, chance they all have. Yeah, it really, it's something. And then what's really cool is they then tell their moms to get screened these college girls. So that's been really exciting. And the movie, you know, it's funny. I got a lot of um, kind of input, I'll call it, instead of criticism. From uh, A lot of people said that the chemo drugs were presented as too serious. I got too sick in the movie, in the book. But then other people said, oh, it didn't even seem like you were doing chemo. Right. Too yeah. You know what I mean? So... I always like to say that every experience is individual, Mm -hmm. and I really honor, I mean, we were just talking about you writing a book and and you writing a book, and I think, you know, we need all the different voices, and nothing makes me happier than hearing that, oh, you know, a lot of people's speeches will say, oh, I loved your book, I want to write one too. I'm like, write it, write (laughs) your book, you know, be there for someone, it's such an amazing feeling. I mean, it is it is so incredible, and I'm actually working on my next book I just turned in, which is so fun, hard to believe. Um, but it's about living after cancer. Yes, exactly. It's kind of funny when you live, because <laughs> then mm-hmm. then you have to worry about getting into nursery school in New York City. You right, know? and FedEx not delivering your package. Yeah. And so on, like, taking your parking spot and the normal things that make you mad. Yeah. It's like, and then you try to stay in the moment of wonder and awe and miracle. Like, la, 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 I had cancer. Life is good. But then there's the mundane that just kind of creeps in. Like my Mm -hmm. kid just barfed on me. Yeah, it's I and you know I was saying that I my daughter my miracle you know everyone told me not to get pregnant and she's now fourteen and she's become a little mean the right. miracle uh-huh. but um I always have to pinch myself and say, good problems to have mm-hmm. right yeah it is it's a really good problem to have yeah growing older you know gray hair yep um, speaking of you had a little stuff done yeah um it's I'm, in your book. Well, I actually, it's funny because I felt guilty getting Botox because I prayed for wrinkles. And then I just, I mean, is it wrong as a cancer patient to get Botox no. <laughs> because you've had wrinkles? But um, I actually, I did the Botox to show women that getting a mammogram hurts so much less than mm-hmm. wearing high heels, than yeah. getting a Brazilian, than all these crazy things we do. And so that was the first time I did the Botox just to show them. I did an ouch meter. And what happens is after, <laughs> I know, it's so funny. And at the end of the day, you know, I got a tattoo. And the end of the day, the mammogram hurt the least. And 
What's so sad is that after I got the Botox, you know, my face fell after six months. Like, I needed to keep getting it. Yeah. Yeah. How many views on that video, by the way? Not enough. I mean, I think we're over 20,000. I think still a lot. I think I'm personally responsible for 18,000. No, I'm just kidding. Cause <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to work YouTube, and I kept, like, hitting it. Like, did it play? <laughs> but then the woman ahead of me on YouTube has, like, 4 million views, and it's hot woman in a bra with gun casing going into her bra. So I'm like, that's so depressing. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. There's no winning on that. The things that get views. But what was really cool is ABC News did a version of Ouch for this past October. We did. I, I went to them with the idea of doing a ABC News a pink campaign just to kind of give women information, get women screened. And so once again. That took again, a dramatic turn. Yes. Once again, I was, I was with a a tall, blonde, beautiful girl who um, she actually did my ouch video. It was so funny. And, yes, as a result of uh, the pink campaign, Amy Roback was diagnosed. And I thought the message was just so unbelievable because, Mm -hmm. you know, she said she was too busy to get a mammogram and she had listened to, you know, Task Force 50, Doctors 40 split the difference, so um, really dramatic example of the benefits of early detection. And what's funny is when she first came out, she said, so she went to Robin Roberts, and Robin Roberts also triple negative breast cancer, so I've seen her on the circuit. We, I actually go the same oncologist as Robin Roberts and Amy Robach. Got to see Andrew Shue, good-looking man. So cute. Even what 20 years after Melrose Place he yeah. looks good yeah uh so that was a nice little surprise at the oncologist visit one day wow but she said um even if this saves one person's life it will be worth it because she had she she uh had hesitations about doing the mammogram and she saved her own life isn't that it's so funny because I, I have this a similar story um Well, what's really deep is I actually went to ABC with the idea because my cousin was misdiagnosed. She had dense breaths, and she wasn't diagnosed in time. And I wanted to kind of spread the word for her. And it was like, Mm -hmm. oh, if I reach one woman. And, you know, she actually was very active. She got a piece of legislation passed with Cuomo about breast density before she passed away. But um, it is amazing when you go out and you reach one person. I my first book signing, I thought I was told there were gonna be seven hundred women and I was at the Jacob Javits Center and unfortunately I was up against Killer Butt, which is a true course. It's like a video on how to get a killer butt and oh. I was wearing a Spanx. And all the women were lined up in front of Killer Butt and wanted to buy the video and I was like, Oh, they're all in my room. They want mm-hmm. to get a good seat and I walked in and there was one woman and she was in the last row crying. And it was remarkable because she was having her mastectomy. Mm-hmm. She didn't think she could do it. She drove me. She told me she drove all the way from Lehigh, Pennsylvania, to meet me. And that feeling of meeting one person mm-hmm. sometimes it makes the whole thing right. Absolutely. So real. And then she wore lipstick to her mastectomy, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, I just think it's like that's what's so cool about this organization. You know. You guys probably started, Matthew, you thought, yeah, I'm going to reach one person, and now how many Facebook likes do you have? I once, well, 110,000, but I, I once gave a piano concert for one person. 
I, I, seriously, so deep. His, his teacher, <laughs> my dad. No, Kobe. I, uh, there was there was a special event here in the city, and I was gonna give a a concert for like sick patients, and one person showed up, so I gave a concert I love for one, that. and it was one of the most one of the deepest uh, event experiences I've ever had. To play for one person who yes. was sick. Yes. I get that. It's funny because when this woman, it's actually one of my first chapters in my new book, when she showed up for me, it was like, it was so powerful because then I realized I had to keep going. Yeah. And then, you know, the book was translated. And it becomes narcotic, right. Yeah. It was like, wow, this is really powerful. I felt the impact. So, and so on and so on and so, you know, it's amazing. I'd like to take the next 10 minutes to talk about two quick things. Sure. Well, not really quick, but two things. Uh, pink nausea in your new book, not directly related specifically, yes. but what I've seen in the the uh, the young adult cancer movement mm-hmm. is so much less fragmentation about where your cancer is in your body. Yeah, and even our manifesto, which is yeah. born born of this pathos, was basically that it's not a contest yeah. about body parts. I respect that so much. Yeah, and I, I've just seen in my just my R and D of other yeah. nonprofit organizations how much of a of I'm worse off than you, you know, contest it is. Yeah. Some of the breast cancer forms are ruthless. If you only had two surgeries, go to hell. I've had six. And wow. and I and that even happens in colorectal cancer and other disease groups. Right, largely right. older Americans. Right. And I don't really see that. I don't think any of us can claim we've seen that at all in the young adult in fact we've had like people feeling guilty that they only had um stage one or stage zero or right, DCIS right, or dysplasia right. and cervical right. cancer stage zero. They, they're guilty that they didn't suffer right. enough. And right. I, that, that, so that opens up the door to what we've seen, this, this huge industry yeah. of anti-pink, corporate greed, groups like Breast Cancer Fund, Breast Cancer Action, Pink Nausea. I, they're, they're, there's a global commerce <laughs> around <laughs> anti-pink. Yeah. And I realize the pros and cons of it existing yeah. today. Yeah. But you can't ignore the elephant in the room, which is, yeah. does it actually make a difference? The pink. Does the pink make a difference? Like when the NFL goes pink, does yeah. that really help? Those those kinds of superficial things where, if, you know. You know what's really funny? Here's the thing. I Sorry to cut you off. I was just, when you mentioned the NFL, I was watching the NFL and reading about all the controversy. And then they had a woman come on during commercial. And she said, my husband was watching football. And I said, why are the football players wearing pink? She did a breast exam, and that, boom, that saved her, you know. Now, should we have pink ribbons on buckets of fried chicken? You know, it's like a pink ribbon literally, I believe, saved my life, just in the sense that it was a symbol of something that was hidden. Now, remember, cancer wasn't talked about in this country. There was silence. And, you know, Betty Ford, she showed herself in her hospital bed after her mastectomy answering letters. So breast cancer, I mean, there was a woman on my block. She never went outside of her house. She told no one. Right. You know, so I think the pink ribbon had a place. I do. And I still think it has a place in the sense that it created awareness. It created a movement. It allowed people to come out. I think with breast cancer, for me, what was so upsetting about it as a disease and so kind of um, just the kind of terrible piece along with having cancer was losing breasts, which is so, you know, 
feminized or strip bars or restaurants, Hooters or yeah. Miracle Bras, Victoria's Secret fashion shows. Right. Losing breasts, losing hair. You know, hair commercials always seem to be on. So I do think there's a kind of unique feminine set of issues that comes along with breast cancer, for better or for worse. But that said, I mean, listen, I just think you're – it's like – George Bush said, you're with us or against us. Yeah. Are you, you know, my whole take on the cancer community, I've never exclusively worked with one group. Right. Different groups have said to me, you can only work with you. I work with everyone. Anyone right. who wants to do something that's against cancer, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I'll do anything for you. I love how, you know, it's very sad to me. I had a friend who had lung cancer, and she didn't have the community of pink. Right. My aunt had pancreatic. She didn't have that. You know what I mean? Ovarian. It's not fair. You know, why does pink and what? Yeah. So I understand all that. I guess that um, what I'm really excited about about your movement is that there is a collective experience that young adults share. And, you know, I always said I have this chapter in Lipstick and a scene in the movie where, you know, it's my first day as a survivor because I'm telling people and – Anyway, I meet this cab driver, and I decide to tell him he's hitting on me, and I want to say, you won't want to ask me to dance tomorrow. I'm having my right breast removed, and then all my hair is going to fall out. And then he says, um, I have one ball, and he basically had testicular cancer. Wow. And so I always think, like, you know, I mean, first of all, what are the chances? Like, I called him my one-balled angel, you know, to appear (laughs) to show me I could be whole with one boob, but, like, you know, about to be one boobed woman, one bald man, find each other in a city of millions. Right. You know, blah, blah, blah. But I always thought, like, it would be a great support group to get testicular cancer patients together with mastectomy patients because there's something that's lost. Yes. That mm-hmm. represents something sexual, something about femininity, masculinity. But I think that overall the young adult cancer experience is we have so much in common. Yes. It's not about when you were talking about body parts earlier. I mean, I remember when they told me, you know, I was going to have to have my ovaries removed, and then my, they had, I had a node on my lung. They were going to remove a lung lobe, and then my thyroid, you know, it's like, what can you give away? What else can you (laughs) give away? Mm -hmm. But I think our experiences just are so common. I mean, with work, with building families, you know, when it hits you at that point, where everyone else's life is just starting, mm-hmm. you know, that trumps any color in my mind. Right. And um, I'm so grateful for this community. It's just, I feel a little old for the young adult to, I mean, I'm but glad I not. got the but Botox. But you're not. No, but I'm glad you're I got an the alumni. Botox. And um, I do have a chapter called I'm Working on My Ass, my new book, because when they were first reconstructing me, they squeezed everywhere to see mm-hmm. if they could move it around. And my ass was, I mean, it was tight. It was, there was not a lot. I didn't have the muffin top. And now it's just like, you know, I'm middle aged. It's so exciting. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's. Look, I'll be 40 in May. So there's the grandfather clause goes awesome. legal on May 29, 2014, when I turn 40. So, so long as you were diagnosed as a young adult, a young yeah. adult survivor forever shall you be. It goes into, yeah. into the constitution of stupid cancer. Yeah. And I like the idea that I can return because. I I like showing people that my life went on. Right. I mean, that's, that's a the whole point. important part it's of my mission. Growing old is a good thing now. And it having is. a family and children. Yeah, And being at really a point where you're, where you're complaining about your children in oh a good God. way. 
uh, seriously, I need some advice. But um, <laughs> I also think that, you know, growing old is very deep because it's just something that a lot of people take for granted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I will never leave the cancer community. As long as I live, I will always you know, my husband's kind of like, you're cured. Why are you still talking about it? It was 18 years, you know. But it's like anything I could do to kind of, and and issues still come up. You know, I'm still scared. Are you guys still scared? I'm still scared. Well, there's the always time. triggers, always triggers. Every headache's a brain tumor, you know, or my kids. I write about that know. in my new book. Yeah. And actually, I was going to get a new tattoo across my ass that said healed. And I chickened out because ah. I didn't feel healed. I'll go with you. I really? want I want another tattoo anyway, so I'll go with you sometime. I would love that. We should film that. I might be ready for healed. Instead of healed, I got sweet because That's I nice. realized life is sweet and right. life is bitter. And always remember to taste the sweet. My tattoo is my Hebrew name, which is Chaya, which means life. which means life. I love that. That's my tat. So let's let's I mean, take the last not. two minutes to talk about the book. What's the name of the book and what's it coming out? Okay, so the new book is The Lipstick Manifesto. And the subtitle is about surviving life with the same kind of courage and humor. And, I mean, I'm scared of everything after having cancer. I, you know, I still worry all the time. I, I never have created a bucket list. I don't know if you guys have. I no. just... It's ironic. Um, I changed the term to a purse list. I think it sounds more dignified. <laughs> um, but I, I basically, I think what I love about the book is it ends, and I basically become this crazy athlete. And it's like I am, um, my body before, I felt like I couldn't trust it, or I was sick, or I had IV lines. And then I just become this soul cycle maniac working on my ass. So um, it's kind of, you know, I wait for the woman to show up for me and kill her butt, and I realize I have to show up for myself. And right. End, <laughs> and I'm trying to work on my ass. So. When does it come out? It's coming out in October. Awesome. And I am really, you know, it's it's such, um, it's an amazing thing to write a first book. I'm going to get teary about cancer and write a second book about life, you know? And, of course, the second book is about cancer, too. But hopefully it has the same tone um, as the first book. And hopefully I will be wearing fierce red lipstick. On You know, the last book ended dreaming about all these places I'd wear lipstick again. So it's kind of cool to still be wearing it on my new book tour. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on the show next October when the book I launches. I love this show. Mm-hmm. I love your studio. It's so chic. I mean, all your listeners, do you ever invite people into the studio to Never. witness? On occasion, we have guests. We have, we've, we, I think we packed the house once with, what was that we show? We had 18 people had 18 on people. The, uh, the first Ascent show. It got really hot. With Brad <laughs> we had a GQ, a GQ uh, winner or nominee? He was a winner. Oh, my God. Brad Ludden, and he brought an entourage. Yeah. Female. Wow, that's fantastic. 18 people. Yeah. Sorry I missed him. <laughs> I mean, but you guys most, are so, most ladies are. You guys are hot. I mean, this is like, this is so cool to be here. I can't thank you enough. And going into the holiday season, I'm I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful that you're paving the road for everyone else. And I just want to say anyone out there who needs some support or hope tonight, I am wearing lipstick for you. I really am, and thinking about you and sending you so much love. 
All right. Geraldine Lucas, author of Why I Wore Lipstick to My Mastectomy, and the new book coming out next October called The Lipstick Manifesto, Sounds celebrating awesome. 18 years cancer-free. Congratulations. Thank you. Geraldine Lucas. Thank you. All right. Now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever <laughs> seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. <laughs> okay, folks, that's our show. Our 289th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. All right, we'd like to thank our guest, Far John Marin, the only one and only Geraldine Lucas. Next week's show, our last show, season 13, going to be a good one. Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, join us for another exclusive 30-minute interview with Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, U.S. Representative for Florida's 23rd District and chair of the DNC. The breast cancer survivor activist is out with her latest book, For the Next Generation, A Wake-Up Call to Solving Our Nation's Problems. Now available on bookshelves, we cannot wait to have her on the air. Okay, subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcast, or Blog Talk Radio, and check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here live next week on Monday for our last show of Season 13. Good night, folks. Good night.